Hi, and welcome to Failurology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Thanks again to our Patreon subscribers. As always, we really, really appreciate your support in making this show come together. For less than the cost of a cup of coffee, which has gone up since last time I purchased coffee, because I don't purchase a lot of coffee, I just consume the free office coffee, you can hear us talk about more interesting engineering failures. Our Patreon is $5 Canadian a month, and those episodes come out on opposite Sundays from our regular episodes, so you get twice as much content from us, and those failures are older failures, or maybe they have simple causes, or they don't quite fit the format for our regular episodes. Some of them are... I would say they're definitely failures, but they maybe don't fit quite into the realm of engineering failures. We've also done a few interesting series over there, so we're just having a little bit of fun with those ones. Uh, if you're unsure about what's on there, you can always check out our website, failurology.ca. There's a tab at the top called Exclusive Content, and that lists all of the many failures that we've covered so far and a few of the ones that are upcoming, so you can kind of see what you're getting into before you sign up. This week in engineering news, a LiDAR prototype that can acquire 3D images underwater. Researchers at the Royal Academy of Engineering at Harriet Watt University in the United Kingdom have developed a prototype LiDAR system that uses quantum detection technology to acquire 3D images while submerged underwater. Since the system is highly sensitive, it can be used to capture information about low-light areas underwater, which happen to be quite a few areas underwater. Since there is limited light underwater, any particles that are within the scan area can distort the image and the product that's derived from those images. As a person who often tries to take photos on dusty construction sites, I can confirm that dust also does the same. And it's really, really hard sometimes to get good pictures because every time you try to take one, you just see a bunch of dust particles. And so first thing you do is you turn your flash off, but then even then sometimes it's really hard to get a good picture. So I understand this pain in, in my own way. So LiDAR systems, they're laser-based. LiDAR is the acronym for light detection and ranging. Um, so if you can imagine every time you, you shine a laser, kind of like Nicole taking a picture on a construction site, it refracts off of water and moisture in the air. It's blocked by particles in the way. And if you're already working a low light condition and there's particles there, it's not going to be great for your derived product from the LiDAR survey. I kind of think of LiDAR-like echolocation that bats use, except with lasers. That's that's what it seems like to me, knowing almost nothing about it. That's a good way to think about it. We'll go with that. Simplest way to describe it. I think it's a really good way to describe it. When I tell people about it, we'll um, you have a laser that pulses. It bounces off of stuff. It's reflected back to the back to the sensor you can measure the time that the laser took to basically be sent bounce off something and returned and then from that you'll derive a point cloud which is all of the millions of laser returns that you get and then from that typically water is classified into various classes so roads and trees and buildings and bridges and power lines and then you get a really neat 3d picture of what the laser bounced off of the system requires thousands of detectors producing hundreds of events per second, which is challenging to retrieve and process, so researchers developed algorithms for high scattered conditions and apply them with a graphics processing hardware. The system was submerged in a tank with a scattering agent for testing and was able to achieve successful results at three different turbidity levels. 
I like to think that they just took a big tank, dumped a bunch of water in there, stirred it up, and that was their scattering agent. So these systems, they are now working to make the, them smaller so that it can be attached to underwater vehicles. Um, I'm hoping that this, this is a system that we see in kind of commercial usage in the next couple of years. One of the limitations of current LiDAR systems is they generally don't penetrate through the water. So you don't get good resolution for what would be a bathymetric survey for things that are underneath the water. It's very much an above ground surface measuring device. So if you want to read more about the study, check out the link on the webpage for this episode at failureology.ca. This week's episode of Failureology is brought to you by CRISPR. Not the genetic engineering technique, but your vegetable CRISPR. Actually, this isn't a sponsor. It's a PSA. You should probably clean out your vegetable CRISPR. There's definitely a cucumber or box of mixed greens you bought last week or last month or last year that needs to go. We're not here to judge. We can't see your fridge. We won't even know whether you clean it out or not, but you'll probably feel better if you do. Now, onto this week's engineering failure, the Lac-Megantic train derailment. Lac-Megantic is a town in Quebec, Canada, located about 200 kilometers east of Montreal, 150 kilometers south of Quebec City, and 25 kilometers north of the Canada-US border between Quebec and Maine. The town of Lac-Megantic was a tourist destination and produced forestry products, furniture, masonite doors, particle board, and architectural granite up until the rail disaster, which we will get to shortly. With that sort of production, I can see why it would be a tourist destination. And that is how I choose my vacations. Masonite doors, particle board, I'm there. I think the lake is the tourist part. That would probably make a lot more sense. Lac-Megantic is about 100 kilometers east of Asbestos, Quebec, which has been renamed Val d'Isor, and while they did not necessarily process or manufacture goods with asbestos in Lac-Megantic, the area appears to have been a hotspot for making construction materials. Lac-Megantic has a population between 5,000 and 6,000 people and a land area of 25 square kilometers. It was settled in 1884, which, coincidentally, is the same year Calgary, where Nicole and I live, was incorporated as a town. The town itself is situated on Lac Megantic or Megantic Lake where it gets its name. Megantic is an Abenaki word, Name So Kangik, I believe is how it's said, meaning place where the fish are held, dating back to the indigenous peoples who originally inhabited the area. The lake has a surface area of 26 square kilometers, slightly larger than the town itself, and is located in the Appalachian Mountains, which run from Georgia in the southeast east of the U.S. up to Quebec. As a side note, I've actually hiked the Appalachian Trail, which is 2,200 miles that goes from Georgia all the way up to Maine. There is also a slight extension that does go into Quebec, but after like five months of hiking, I decided it was better to take an airplane back to Canada. So about 10 years ago, on July 6, 2013, at 1.15 a.m. local time, an unattended 73-car Montreal, Maine and Atlantic Railway, or MMA, freight train carrying Bakken Formation crude oil rolled down a 1.2% grade hill from Nantes and derailed in downtown Lac-Megantic, resulting in the explosion and fire of multiple tank cars. The initial reports describe a one-kilometer blast radius. At least 30 buildings, which represented about half of downtown, were destroyed, and 47 people were killed. During the cleanup, due to the petroleum contamination, 
only three of the 39 buildings that had survived the explosion were allowed to remain. This is the fourth deadliest rail accident in Canadian history and the deadliest involving non-passenger or freight trains. The other three accidents which were deadlier than this one were before Canada became a country in 1867. The Transportation Safety Board of Canada completed an investigation into the derailment, and we'll include a link to the report in the sources section on the webpage for this episode. And this report is where we got a lot of information for this episode. I liked the report. That sounds weird to say. Some of the reports are very confusing and they use language that only someone who's a specialist in that type of failure would be able to follow. Some of them are quite challenging to read. This one I thought was pretty straightforward and clear and I enjoyed it. And they also included pictures, which helps. You know, I'm I'm not a train engineer, so there's some things I don't know. So pictures with arrows pointing things out is really helpful to me. That's actually one of the most disappointing things about going to engineering school. At no point do you actually get to drive a train. We talked about engineering as a regulator profession back, I think, just before Christmas on an episode. And it's my understanding that locomotive engineer or some type of any type of train engineer is the only profession or or vocation job that you can have use the title engineer and not be registered with a regulating body. It's the only one that's been allowed to remain. They've kind of been grandfathered into that. I believe aircraft maintenance engineers are also grandfathered in where they're not regulated by a PEGA or a provincial regulatory body. Um, I believe those are the only two, train engineers and aircraft maintenance engineers. And I think it's just because they'd been using that term really before the regulatory bodies started for regulating engineering in Canada. So the train itself, it departed Farnham, which is 50 kilometers east of Montreal, at 1.55 p.m. on July the 5th and arrived in Nantes at 10.50 p.m., where it was to be recrewed and continue through Maine to eventually reach its destination of St. John, New Brunswick. The train itself had 72 tank cars loaded with about 6.7 million liters of crude oil, one boxcar, five locomotives, and one VB car used to house equipment. There was only one locomotive engineer on the train, positioned in the lead locomotive. He had reported issues during the trip which affected the train's ability to maintain speed. Nicole and I are not train engineers, like we just mentioned. I'm not sure if this is a common thing that happens on trains, Um, you know, ability to maintain speed or kind of other issues. I know, you know, if you're driving your car, there's always issues that, you know, come up and some people choose to ignore them. Some people deal with them right away. I don't know if this is an issue that occurs frequently on trains. Um, Either way, it was reported that the train was having difficulty maintaining speed. Yeah, and we'll get into that a bit more shortly I think the Cantera Loop rail disaster that we talked about early on in one of the, I think it was the fourth mini failure episode, that one I think had a similar problem where the engine wasn't able to maintain a consistent speed. And so it kind of lurches forward little bits at a time, which puts a lot of pressure on all of the different connections between all of the other cars. And then you kind of have this, you have this forward force, but then once all the other cars push back on that. So you have this push pull that happens on the the lead locomotive because it's not able to maintain a consistent speed, which creates other problems. That's not necessarily what happened here, but I, I don't think it's uncommon and that it never happens. And based on what we'll talk about in a second, when they decided to leave the train like that overnight and they would deal with it in the morning, it doesn't sound like it was a really urgent issue, but it sounded like something that needed to be addressed, but not right now. 
So a little bit about train brakes. These are important, so I think it's worth explaining. So trains are equipped with two air brake systems. They have automatic and independent brakes. The automatic brake system applies the brakes to each car and the locomotive on the train and is normally used during train operation to slow and stop the train. So those are like the brakes on your car, uh, the brake pedal in your car. Each locomotive is equipped with an independent brake system, which only applies brakes on the locomotives. And those independent brakes are not normally used during train operations, but are primarily used as a parking brake, which is like the parking brake in your car. If you drive a manual like I do, you'll know how important the parking brake can be. So those are kind of the different two different brakes. You've got the one like the pedal in your car and one like the the handbrake or the, the emergency brake in your car. So when this train stopped in Nantes, just outside of Lac-Megantic, they were using the automatic brakes or the brake pedals. And the engineer applied the independent brakes or the, the emergency brake to the locomotive. He applied seven hand brakes on the locomotives and boxcar, and he shut down the four trailing locomotives, leaving the lead locomotive running, the one that was having issues. He then released the automatic brakes, which were the ones he used to stop the train, and did a handbrake effectiveness test with only the independent locomotive brakes still in play. So what he did was he used the, I'll try to explain it like a car. So he used the brake pedal to stop the train. He left that in place, applied a bunch of handbrakes to make sure that the train wasn't going to go anywhere. And those are like the emergency brakes in your car or that lever that pulls back and it makes that weird clicking sound. Although now they're motorized in some newer cars. And then once he was confident that those were secure, then he released the brake pedal or the automatic brakes. He called rail traffic control for the area he was in and let them know that the train was parked and secure. I mentioned that he applied seven handbrakes, and as per the railway company's rules, with a train of 72 cars, a minimum of nine handbrakes should have been used. This is commonly referred to as the 10% plus two rule. So there's 72 cars, 10% would be seven plus two, nine handbrakes. So he only applied seven. He wasn't following the regulations of the railway company. He was kind of on the cusp of two different rail traffic areas. After calling the one for the area he was in or the area east, the area he came from, he also called the rail traffic controller for the next leg of the route to let them know about the mechanical difficulties and that excessive black and white smoke was coming from the smokestack. And this was likely at the time he was probably notifying them so they could make arrangements to fix the lead locomotive in the morning before the train started moving or whenever it got to its next checkpoint. The engineer and controller agreed to leave the train as is and deal with the engine issues in the morning. The engineer left the train at 11.30 p.m. by taxi to head to a local hotel. The taxi driver noticed smoke and oil droplets from the lead locomotive were landing on his windshield, which suggests to me that this was a pretty excessive issue with this engine if smoke and oil droplets are landing on a car nearby. Uh, but the engineer stated that he'd called rail traffic and they agreed to leave it that way. And on he went to the hotel. So at 11.40 p.m., 10 minutes after the engineer left, a 911 call came through about a fire on a train in Nantes. The fire department and police department responded, called the rail traffic controller who failed to get in contact with an engineer, and a track foreman for the rail company met them on site. So this happened in 2013, which is well past the point of, of cell phones. We all had smartphones. Everyone's got a phone in their pocket. And the engineer had left 10 minutes before. 
I really am struggling to understand why they couldn't reach this engineer at the time. It's possible he turned his phone off. It's possible he uh, he didn't answer or or something like that. But this engineer had come through. He had done this route several times before. He likely stayed at the same hotel every time. It's concerning to me that they weren't able to get in touch with him because I think, you know, had this fire not happened and the things that they did to to put this fire out, this whole accident could have been avoided. I'm not saying the engineer didn't do things wrong because he did, but and and we're going to get to it in a second, but I think this fire set the train literally in motion on track for downtown Lac-Megantic. The firefighters said that the emergency fuel cutoff switch was used to shut down the lead locomotive, which removed the fuel source and put out the fire. The firefighters also turned off the automatic brakes for this locomotive to eliminate the potential ignition source. While this was in line with railway instructions, this unknowingly disengaged some of the brakes on the train that were in place when the train was brake tested. It's also important to note that the fire department was in contact with the local rail traffic controller, not the one for the next leg, which kind of makes sense. If you're responding to an emergency, you're probably talking to the local rail controller. The local controller, unfortunately, was not made aware of the mechanical issues that the locomotives had had or the decision to leave the train as it was. Because, again, the engineer had contacted the rail traffic controller for the next leg, like Nicole said, probably to set up, you know, potential maintenance or to make them aware of the issue, but just had never dealt with the local rail traffic controller for this issue. Just to reiterate, I I am in no way blaming the fire department for what they did to put out the fire. That was necessary. But there was clearly a breakdown in communication between the rail traffic controllers. Maybe the engineer should have called both of them, or maybe they should have talked to each other. In addition, the brake test was not completed properly because he wasn't following the 10% plus two rule. And the lead locomotive in the state that it's in shouldn't have been left running. I mean, there were four other locomotives. I don't see why the lead one couldn't have been shut off and the air brakes applied to one of the other ones that were in better shape. So I'm in no way saying the fire department's at fault here, but they unknowingly disengaged some of the brakes for the train that had those brakes remained in play. This this accident may not have happened, which is what makes this so frustrating is that it's kind of this series of unfortunate events. The engineer doesn't quite follow the rules, but he's close enough. And so maybe it would have been okay, but you don't, I mean, we don't know for sure. The fire department's just trying to deal with the fire. They're following procedure that they're aware of. They're not given any special information about what happened because there's a breakdown in communication and all of these small little things that go wrong lead to this huge catastrophic event that has changed this town and the people in it forever. I think the fire department responded to this in a very reasonable manner. I I don't see any fault in how they responded to this. Unfortunately, it turned out not great. The locomotive's automatic air brakes were an air system, so the issue wasn't noticed right away. But without the engine running to maintain air pressure, the brake system slowly depleted, and by 1 a.m. on July 6th, the train started to roll towards Lac Megantique, 11 and a half kilometers away. The train reached downtown Lac Megantique by 1.15 a.m. and derailed. The overall elevation drop from where the train started to where it derailed was about 100 meters, and the train got up to about 100 kilometers per hour by the time it reached Lac Megantique. 
So based on the fact that this train took nine hours to travel 200 kilometers earlier that day, its typical speed would be somewhere around 25 kilometers per hour. At 100 kilometers per hour or 65 miles per hour, the report was in Imperial. I assume it would have been extremely unstable. And I believe the report also mentioned that the speed limit through this area was 15 miles per hour, which would be limited for other factors beyond just the train's ability to stay on the track. Of course, there's the people factor and this is a town, so you're going through communities and and you need to make sure it's safe for that reason. But this is going a lot faster than that at 100 kilometers per hour. The rail route from Nantes is not completely straight. It does have a few turns in it, but there's a relatively large radius in those turns compared to the turn in downtown Lac-Megantic, where the rail line comes from the northwest, and then it turns south around the lake and then west again. So as it comes down the hill into downtown to turn and go around the lake, the, the rail line wise, and it can either go south or it can kind of carry east. And right at that Y is where it derailed. The lead locomotive itself didn't derail. It came to a stop about 1,300 meters from the, the site of the derailment. It did separate from the rest of the train, which then further separated into two sections. And the two sections were 32 meters apart, both traveling east, and they came to rest on an ascending grade on the eastern side of town, stopping about 150 meters apart. So we're going to put some pictures of the derailment aftermath on the website for this episode, or you can look them up yourself. If you think this sounds bad, once you look at the pictures, you will realize it is much, much worse. Yeah, reading the report, I thought, this is bad. I have know about this story. I've heard about this. I, I heard about it when it was happening. I've loosely followed this story over the last decade. And so you know it's bad. It, it sounds bad. You read it. It's terrible. But then you look at the pictures and you're like, oh, this is really, really bad. This is 10 times worse than I thought it was. And I already thought it was bad. So I, I highly recommend checking out pictures just to fully understand the magnitude of this accident. So we mentioned earlier that the train was carrying 6.7 million liters of crude oil about 6 million or 90% of that was released when the train derailed. That crude oil contaminated 31 hectares or about a third of a square kilometer of land around the crash site. The crude oil even made its way into the town's sanitary and sewer system, which contaminated water treatment facilities and increased risk of further damage away from the original crash site. And about 100,000 liters of crude ended up in Lac Megantic, the lake itself. So we talked about the Cleveland East oil gas explosion on our ninth mini failure over on our Patreon, and that explosion was caused by a storage tank that broke apart and sent gas throughout that section of Cleveland. But in that story, the gas also made its way into the sewer pipes in the street, and it caused a number of underground explosions blocks away from the initial storage tank because of that gas getting into the sewer system and just being able to travel so much further than the initial explosion area. Luckily, I don't I don't think this happened in Lac-Megantic, which is a good thing. Amongst this entire disaster, this is one thing that could have gone worse. I'm glad that that didn't occur because that that could have been much worse. It would have destroyed much more of the town and it would have made the risk last a lot longer than, than it did. 
The engineer who parked the train in Nantes had been qualified as a locomotive engineer since 1986, so he'd been doing this for 27 years at this point. And even though his employer had changed over the years as that section of rail was bought and sold, he remained in the territory and he completed hundreds of trips between Farnham and Lac Megantic. He'd even done about 60 eastbound trips on this train in the year before the accident and about 20 of those as a single person operator. So this guy was not new. He he had done this. He knew the route. He knew the train. He was comfortable with this territory. And and maybe that's part of why this went so wrong. Maybe he became complacent. Maybe he got too comfortable. Uh, it's possible he knew about the 10% plus two rule, but had thought, well, I haven't done that in the past and it's never been an issue, so I shouldn't have to do it differently now. He could have had issues with the locomotive like he had here and issues with the braking, but maybe not together at the same time. You know, I, I deal with a lot of different issues or problems that I'm trying to solve, but sometimes I, you know, sometimes they're all isolated incidents and to have to kind of look at them all as a collective thing to see the whole picture and get an understanding for what the risks really are. It doesn't seem like he did that here. He also probably didn't think the locomotive would catch on fire because I would assume that's not your first thought. Uh, he's probably seen locomotives have this issue before and likely not catching on fire. I'm not I'm not trying to defend him. I'm just trying to, I guess, be empathetic to the fact that sometimes experienced people or people with good intentions make bad choices that lead to these catastrophic events. And I don't think he woke up that morning intending to blow up a town. That's what happened, but I don't think that's what he intended to do. I, I think it's important that we discuss how he got to this point in the thoughts that may have went through his head, because I think this kind of stuff can happen to any of us and we need to be thoughtful about the risks that can occur and how we're trying to address them and not just say, oh, I've done it that way for 20 years and so it's fine. I don't need to follow the rules because that's that's not necessarily the case. The rules are there for a reason. Back to the train, the train cars themselves had undergone a brake test in Toronto on July 4th, so two days before the accident, and again in Montreal the day before on July 5th when it left. And five of the tank cars had mechanical defects and they were removed from the train. So it does sound like everything kind of leading up to it arriving in Nantes had, I mean, I'm not an expert in train safety, but it sounds like they had kind of followed the procedures and and at least done the checks that they were supposed to and pulled the trains that weren't functional. As you can imagine, there were a lot of findings that came out of this incident. I would expect that there would be a lot of findings. I'm really glad that there were a lot of findings. Anytime a train rolls through a town and destroys a large portion of a town, there's probably going to be a number of things that went poorly. So we're going to discuss, I believe, 18 of these findings and contributing factors. We'll go through them in order. But yeah, there, there's some fairly significant findings and changes that happened as a result of this Lac Megantic disaster. So starting with number one, the train was parked unattended on the main line on a descending grade, relying on a locomotive that was not in proper operating condition. A few things there, not great. Parked trains, descending grades, a locomotive not in proper operating condition. If that locomotive fails for whatever reason, that train is going to just keep rolling downhill. Number two, 
The seven handbrakes that were applied to secure the train were not enough to hold the train without the additional braking force provided by the locomotive's independent brakes. Nicole talked about the 10% plus two rule, so there should have been nine handbrakes that were set on this train. There were only seven. Number three, no proper handbrake effectiveness test was conducted to confirm that there was adequate braking force to prevent movement and no additional physical safety defenses were in place to prevent the uncontrolled movement of the train. Number four, despite significant indications of mechanical problems with the lead locomotive, like it's spewing smoke and fuel, the locomotive engineer and rail traffic controller agreed that no immediate repairs were necessary, and the locomotive was left running to maintain air pressure on the train. And while I follow that maybe no immediate repairs were necessary at midnight, I don't follow that it should have been left running. Obviously, that led to a fire that seems like a bad idea. Number five, not repairing that engine allowed oil to accumulate in the turbocharger and exhaust manifold, which resulted in a fire. Number six, when the locomotive was shut down as a response to the engine fire, no other locomotive was started and consequently no air pressure was provided to the independent brakes. Further locomotives with an auto start system were shut down and not available to provide air pressure when the air brake system began to leak. In their defense, it, the fire department was not aware that this was an issue. They weren't aware with how the brakes were set. The rail traffic controller that was local to the area was not notified of how the train was left. And so the fire department unknowingly disengaged some of the brakes that were holding this train that was already pointed downhill uh, in place. Seven, the reset safety control on the lead locomotive wasn't wired to initiate a penalty brake application when the rear electrical panel breakers were opened. Eight, because air leaked from the train at about one pound per square inch per minute, the rate was too slow to activate an automatic brake application. I didn't read too, too much into this. I'm not sure. To me, it sounds like if there was a sudden drop in air pressure, an automatic brake would have activated, but because it was such a slow leak, that wasn't the case. Nine, when the brake force provided by the independent brakes was reduced to about 97,000 pounds, bringing the overall brake force for the train to approximately 146,000 pounds, the train started to roll, which essentially means once the air pressure dropped below a certain threshold, it was no longer enough to hold the trains in place and it started to move. 10. The high speed of the train as it negotiated the curve near the Megantic West turnout caused the train to derail. And that's that Y with one leg kind of going south around the lake. That's where the, the derailment occurred, right right in downtown Lac Megantic. And 11. About one third of the derailed tank car shells had large breaches, which rapidly released large quantities of highly volatile petroleum crude oil, which ignited, creating large fireballs and a pool of fire. Number 12, the railway company did not provide effective training or oversight to ensure that crews understood and complied with rules governing train securement. Number 13, when making significant operational changes on its network, the railway company did not thoroughly identify and manage the risks to ensure safe operations. Number 14, the safety management systems were missing key processes and others were not being effectively used. As a result, they did not have a fully functioning safety management system to effectively manage risk. Number 15, the weak safety culture contributed to the continuation of unsafe conditions and unsafe practices and compromised the railway company's ability to effectively manage safety. 16, despite being aware of significant operational changes at the railway company, 
Transport Canada did not provide adequate regulatory oversight to ensure the associated risks were addressed. 17. Transport Canada Quebec Region did not follow up to ensure that recurring safety deficiencies at the railway company were effectively analyzed and corrected, and consequently, unsafe practices persisted. Last but not least, number 18, the limited number and scope of safety management system audits that were conducted by Transport Canada Quebec Region and the absence of a follow-up procedure to ensure corrective action plans had been implemented contributed to the systematic weakness in safety management systems remaining unaddressed. So there was also a number of findings that were more high level and related to the overall risks associated with the rail industry. So the first 18 that we covered were directly related to this accident that happened in Lac-Megantic. But there's a number of them that are associated with kind of just rail safety in general. There's not 18. There's only six of these. But we're going to talk about these as well because I think these are really, really important. These are the things. What are the takeaways from this this tragic accident that happened 10 years ago in Lac-Megantic that we can apply to railway safety in general to make the entire thing safer. And I will admit, based on the number of railway issues and accidents and derailments and leaks and everything else that's been going on earlier this year, I would say that a lot of these haven't been implemented or at least not widely implemented to prevent this type of thing from happening. I don't know if it's because we're more aware of rail accidents lately or because there's just more of them, but there have been a lot of them and more than I remember are bad. You know, it's one thing for have to have a train derail in a field in the middle of nowhere. Not good, but no one is hurt that isn't as bad as when it derails into a town or into a stream or river or takes out large infrastructure such as bridges or large roadways. Those are a lot more catastrophic and these are all preventable. These are all completely preventable. So amongst these high-level risks, it couldn't be concluded whether single-person train operations contributed to the incorrect securement of the train or to the decision to leave the locomotive running at Nantes, Quebec, despite its abnormal condition. The petroleum crude oil being transported by the train was improperly classified, so it was assigned packing group three, which is the lowest hazard, despite meeting the criteria for packing group two. So had it been classified properly that could have changed a few different things where they were allowed to park it how they were allowed to park it the types of cars that it was in how many cars of this product they were allowed to transport on one train maybe this would have pushed them into the two operator scenario or multiple operator scenarios i I don't really know the difference between packing group two and three but there is a difference because they're labeled differently so there are probably different safety classifications when you you go to a higher risk group Uh, The Nantes Fire Department had to shut down the locomotive to stop the flow of oil, which was feeding the fire. And while their actions were consistent with railway instructions, it did unfortunately remove some of the braking involved. So how could that have been avoided? There's clearly a communication breakdown. Procedures weren't being followed. How can all of that be corrected going forward? All right, on to the last three. Uh, Number four, the track geometry condition was adequate for the existing traffic and was acceptable for the speed allowed, which was 15 miles per hour or 24 kilometers per hour for trains traveling through Megantic Station. Um, Number five, despite the challenges of responding to a major disaster not specifically covered by many firefighters' practical training, the emergency response was conducted in a well-coordinated and effective manner. 
Again, last but not least, number six, the regulatory requirements in place at the time of this accident did not ensure an increase in risk was reflected in insurance coverage. Which I think is related to how the railway company was held responsible and or required to pay for all of the damage that was done to Lack Megantic. I don't actually know where this stands, but I imagine that the brunt of that was borne by the town itself and likely the province, which is which just makes this much more frustrating. So there you have it. The Lac Megantic train derailment, which rocked a tiny Quebec town 10 years ago. For photos, sources, and an episode summary from this week's episode, head to failureology.ca. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to Failureology so more people can find us. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failureology. You can email us at thefailureologypodcast at gmail.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, or you can message us on our Patreon page. Check out the show notes for links to all of these, and thanks everyone for listening. Tune into the next episode where we'll talk about GNSS, or Global Navigation Satellite Systems. Bye everyone. Talk soon.